It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast. I'm Carol Walker, in for Matt Chorley this week. He's off hanging up his bunting and whipping up his jubilee trifles for the celebrations ahead. Coming up on the podcast today, should the West intervene to break Russia's blockade of Ukrainian ports? We'll discuss the options and the risks with businesses and experts. But first, as always, we have our columnists panel and today it's Manveen Rana and Alex Massey. The Columnists on Times Radio. It's time to talk to some of our favourite columnists. And this morning we've got Manveen Rana from the Stories of Our Times podcast. Good morning, Manveen. Morning. And the Times is Alex Massey. Good morning to you, Alex. Good morning. Great to have you both with us. Um, Let's start with uh, the warning on the front page of the Times this week. Six million households could face blackouts this winter because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ministers have been warned as they look to bolster electricity supplies by prolonging the life of coal and nuclear power stations. Um, Manveen, what do we make of this? We're told that it is a worst case scenario. Yeah, but I mean, I think for most people reading that, it's just pretty shocking. You know, apparently the prime minister actually turned around and asked at cabinet how many people remember the 70s. And I think that will probably colour your reading of the front page. I mean, I'm I'm lucky enough not to have experienced it firsthand. But, you know, the idea that businesses would only be able to use electricity on certain days if if things get get even worse. But, you know, the, the medium worst case scenario they're talking about is at least sort of rationing it at peak times, which seems like a terrible idea. So seven to nine, I think, in the morning and then again in the afternoons from about four till about seven. Um, I mean, I, I can't imagine how we'll all cope and that it'll be a huge loss to productivity that they're predicting GDP will be affected for years to come. Um, it's all quite apocalyptic. And it just sort of makes you think, uh, you know, this isn't actually because of our reliance on Russian gas. It's just because it's going to affect so much of the European market that we're going to struggle to get gas from sources that we've been relying on, like Norway, uh, in in the same quantities. Um, And it's just sort of whether we should have been thinking about sort of energy security for a, a much longer period. And there are so many sort of new sources of gas um, that are around the world, which have, we've sort of all turned a blind eye to because they're in sort of awkward conflict areas. So, you know, sort of around um, 
you know, I, I sort of lived in Lebanon for a while uh, covering the Middle East conflict and there's huge swathes of it along the, the coast there, but they can't decide whether it belongs to Lebanon or Israel. Um, probably a bit of both. And so that they're just, they're never exploited. Um, similarly, you know, sort of Ukraine war kicked off initially in 2014, just as they discovered they had huge reserves of shale gas, which might have threatened Russia's um, gas supplies to, to most of Europe. And, you know, whether we should have been thinking about some of this stuff earlier um, and how quickly it would take to get that stuff on the market now. Yeah. Um, and Alex, this does seem to be, I mean, something that, that that's looming within months. We were hearing um, in the last half hour that, you know, criticism, perhaps the government should have thought more long term about our dependence on uh, where we get our gas and oil. Um, but this is something that's really going to potentially have another serious effect on, on the economy apart from anything else. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, you're absolutely right. And Manveen is as well, I think, to stress the long term uh, aspects of this in terms of planning, because energy supply, rather like defence spending, in actual fact, is the sort of thing that needs to be done, I think, on a worst case scenario. You need to have a certain amount of built in redundancy uh, mm. in, in, the, in the system. So that if one thing fails or a problem comes drops up with uh, one particular form of energy supply, you have sufficient reserves and alternative supplies uh, to, to cope with that. Uh, and, you know, in both of these questions, both in terms of security policy and energy security, um, the war in Ukraine has been a sort of return to, to real hard politics, hard current affairs of a sort that um, I think many people in Europe, particularly in Western Europe, had thought had been consigned to the history books. And of course, this is turns out not to be the case. Uh, and so there's a kind of continental waken, uh, wake up call um, is, is required in, in terms of this. And, in, and so longer term, you know, yes, of course, renewables need to play a larger and more prominent part in our energy supply, but there need to be uh, alternatives in place, um, whether that's gas, whether it's nuclear, whether it's other uh, forms of technology such as hydrogen and so on, that can compensate for something going wrong. Um, and the failure to have that kind of long-term planning is, is something that uh, not just Boris Johnson's government obviously can be blamed for, but Theresa May's, David Cameron's, perhaps even going back to the Blair Brown era as well, because yeah. we have been very bad at putting in place those additional fail-safe uh, backups, if you like, that, that we now quite clearly need. Because unless you, you know, if you don't plan for the worst case scenario, then you are stuffed if the worst case scenario actually turns up. Yeah, uh, and Alex is completely right. I mean, we sort of saw this with COVID too, you know, we're so used to the system running on hot, you know, we don't have any sort of flexibility or extra capacity in the health, in healthcare, um, as Alex mentioned, in defence spending too, which is cut to the bone. I mean, what if, what if we have to use it? Yeah, and um, just one more on this, Alex, because uh, we were hearing that it seems that domestic supplies will be prioritised, so it's unlikely we'll have power cuts at home, although this idea of rationing it at the most busy time of the day seems a bit bizarre. But but there is talk about um, closing down factories and, and businesses, which is, I mean, the, the last thing that those businesses and their employees need. 
Yeah, I mean, it may, of course, you know, these are, you know, contingency plans for the worst case scenario. So it's possible that it won't happen. But at the same time, businesses need to have a degree of certainty over a whole range of uh, their activities um, if they're going to be able to plan and invest and grow. Yeah. And so the, the potential for this kind of interruption to energy supplies makes it very difficult for, for large scale businesses in particular to to plan on the time type of scale and you know, timetable that they need to. And that then obviously has an economic um, hit, not just in terms of lost output, but lost output in the future as a result of investment that perhaps doesn't take place. And, um, and that then compounds, you know, the inflationary pressures that we have at the moment, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the general sense of a kind of economic malaise affecting um, the UK. And then, of course, there's the further geopolitical consideration of that if this happens in the UK, and it could well also happen in other European countries, how does that then affect how people feel about the war in, in Ukraine? How does that feel mm. about... Uh, how does that impact support for Ukraine um, or how does it impact, you know, the sense that some kind of a settlement will have to be made with Russia, however disagreeable that may be? Yeah. And those become very difficult questions to answer, too. Indeed. Uh, and so everything is sort of linked together and compounding one another as well, which makes it all very difficult. Um, Manveen, um, you've um, noticed uh, Claire Foger's column in The Times today, how much immigration can Britain sustain? A million people, uh, roughly the number living in Birmingham, the populations of Edinburgh and Cardiff combined, or Plymouth plus Southampton plus Blackpool plus Belfast. Um, what did you make of uh, Claire Foger's column? Yeah, I, th I thought it was really interesting. I mean, the numbers are significant, um, and you know, obviously, a lot of a lot of the people coming in will will provide skills, will sort of be um, a massive boon to the country. Um, but but the numbers, I think, will sort of surprise a lot of people. Her, her column gets to what I thought was a really fascinating debate in the run-up to Brexit. And I kept finding this when I was sort of interviewing people from from the campaigns. Um, and the people who sort of ran the Leave campaigns always sort of said that they had to split their campaign effectively between sort of um, vote Leave and Leave EU because you were sort of appealing to different audiences. So there was sort of the, the, the higher audience, the sort of the bankers and the hedge funders they were appealing to, who all sort of saw this as being part of global Britain and you'd go out and you'd actually increase immigration and you'd ha have sort of trade deals with other countries, which would always mean, you know, where every time we're trying to do a trade deal with India, they sort of say, well, you've got to allow more immigration, um, which was always going to be the case. And they sort of knew that. But then the other half of, of, of the, the campaign was basically sort of selling the message to people in in um, places that were left behind by saying that this would cut immigration. And there was an awful lot of sort of dog whistle politics around, you know, whether it's Turkey potentially joining the EU and what that might mean. Um, and now it, as a result, we've ended up in this bizarre situation where Brexit has gone through and we actually have more immigration than ever before. And I think more than anything, it's that sort of that democratic deficit of all the people who thought they were voting for one thing and have ended up with something very different. Um, Alex, uh, a quick thought from you on this one, because I also want to talk to you about your column today. Um, yeah, well, I mean, one of the paradoxes of, of Brexit is, is and Mandy's absolutely right, that most people who voted Leave thought they were voting for uh, reduced immigration and so on. But one of the, the ironies, if you like, is that as a result of Brexit, uh, the salience of immigration as an issue in British politics has declined considerably. 
in fact, it's not something that people are particularly concerned by at present. Now, of course, that could change. But uh, for the time being, actually, the, the United Kingdom has a very liberal attitude to immigration, certainly if compared with other uh, peer European countries. Uh, and, you know, the message of Brexit was in this sense, and I think it's something that, you know, Remainers, including myself and so on, have to accept, is that it's not so much a question of the absolute numbers that people are concerned about with regard to immigration. What they liked about the Brexit message was the sense that the United Kingdom could set its own rules on immigration. And if that meant, uh, you know, that, that, that perhaps there might be more immigration than plenty of people thought, then, then so be it. But it, the rules would be set because they were deemed most appropriate for the UK. So it was yeah. the ability to control immigration rather than actually using the power to control immigration that people found appealing. And the same is true in, in, in certain other Brexit-related industries, such as fishing. It wasn't so much about changing fishing rules and so on. It was about having the ability to change them. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that is something that, you know, um, remains the case. Now, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't want to interrupt you, Alex, but I do want to have time to squeeze in a conversation about your column today, um, because you've uh, had um, quite a go at the SNP government in Scotland. Cheap point scoring can't mask SNP's failings. Um, tell us a bit more about this. Well, yes, I mean, one of the I mean, Nicola Sturgeon has just uh, become the longest serving first minister in Scotland in the history of the Scottish Parliament, overtaking uh, her once friend um, and now enemy Alex Salmond. Um, but, you know, all the opinion polling suggests that despite seven years of agitation on the constitutional question, the SNP haven't actually made any significant or sustainable progress on their great quest, which is, of course, for immigration, uh, for independence. Um, and uh, you have a range of uh, policy failures on transport, on education, on various other matters, uh, where the public is increasingly disgruntled with the SNP, but doesn't see any alternative to it. Um, so it is uh, in power, but not... But, but losing authority in certain respects. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's preeminence as Scotland's dominant party is, is not in doubt. But at the same time, its ability to deliver on its proposals, on its agenda, let alone on independence, is in doubt. And so that leaves, you know, Nicola Sturgeon isn't going anywhere right now, um, but nor is Scotland. Um, Manveen, um, your thoughts on this? I mean, it is fascinating, isn't it, how Scottish politics is is just so different from uh, other parts of the UK with Nicola Sturgeon still so much the dominant character there. No, it is fascinating. Um, I mean, I remember sort of going out in the run up to the last couple of elections and sort of following candidates as they were sort of canvassing in, in a few of the seats. Um, and I found it really fascinating that the SNP, when they were door knocking, would very rarely actually mention independence. I think it was sort of quite useful for some of the candidates thought anyway, that it felt like the, the question had been settled temporarily. Um, so that, you know, that they, they won huge electoral victories after the independence referendum had happened. And there are a lot of people who, who vote for them in Scotland who sort of vote for them for other reasons, which, you know, as Alex pointed out, might soon sort of hit a wall and might be in trouble because they, they haven't had a great record on things like education. But um, a lot of people were voting for them as a party they quite liked, but not because they wanted independence. Um, and I think that, they, you know, they sort of have a similar um, position as sort of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, where you know, they are, they, they all pay lip service to the idea of independence, but nobody particularly wants a referendum in a hurry because what if they lost again? 
Alex Massey and Manveen Rana there. Now it's time for our chat on those calls for the West to break Russia's naval blockade of Ukrainian ports. The Big Thing on Times Radio. And our big thing this morning is could the West intervene to break the Russian blockade of Ukrainian ports? Over the weekend, Prime Minister Boris Johnson spoke to Ukraine's President Zelensky about Russia's blockade of Ukraine's biggest shipping port, Odessa. He told President Zelensky that international partners are working intensively to find ways to resume the export of grain from Ukraine to avert a global food crisis. Boris Johnson said the UK would work with G7 partners to push for urgent progress. Well, yesterday on Times Radio Sunday Politics Show, I spoke to Timothy Milanov, who is an advisor to Ukraine's presidential office, and he proposed this solution. It is difficult for me to imagine how Russia would attack convoys of uh, the European countries, which are humanitarian convoys to Odessa or to other ports around Odessa, uh, with the sole purpose of alleviating the food security crisis. The food security supply chains more than it is damaging um, the Ukrainian economy um, in many ways, uh, unfortunately. And so a humanitarian corridors, uh, convoys of cargo ships, uh, organized by Europe, maybe the United Nations, maybe a group of countries uh, with some protection, but uh, made it clear to the Russians that it's a, it's a peaceful convoy with the sole intention of bringing food out of Ukraine. I think that might work. Well, let's speak now to The Times defence editor, Larissa Brown. Good morning to you, Larissa. Good morning. Really good to have you with us. Just explain, first of all, exactly what is going on, which ports are being blocked and why is this having such a significant effect? Well, yes, so obviously we've talked a lot lot about in the last three months Russia's failures, uh, but one of their important strategic gains has been its ability to cut off Ukraine's access to the Black Sea. Now, analysts have said this morning that Russia has got uh, two uh, two carriers, two cruise missile carriers, uh, ready to strike uh, from the Black Sea. And they've had a variety of ships in that area for quite a long time. And of course, this poses a problem for uh, Odessa, which is obviously the main uh, city where the Ukrainians were exporting grain. And so it's got a lot of ships stuck there that aren't able to get out and obviously uh, export that grain to other countries that desperately need it. And so that's obviously the problem that Boris Johnson is trying to solve along with Zelensky and other countries around the world. But there's a lot of debate about how you could solve that. And one of those, of course, is to have this effective humanitarian corridor and bring in uh, warships from NATO countries or other countries also. Um, but of course, that could be potentially quite, I mean, a risky operation. We're hearing that there are mines in the area and presumably you'd have to have some form of agreement with the the Russian warships which are in the area. Absolutely. So I was speaking to uh, the Lithuanian foreign minister last week, and he was really pushing this issue of the idea of uh, countries getting together and agreeing to send ships that would then uh, basically escort those humanitarian convoys out of the sea. And he sort of suggested that the Russians wouldn't then dare to attack those ships that would obviously be heavily armed. Uh, I did also speak to the British Ministry of Defence, however, after this, and it seems that they're, they're pushing back on the idea that they want Royal Navy ships involved in this because it would be 
incredibly dangerous. They think that they wouldn't want to risk such an operation unless the Russians agreed to that. Uh, because um, they would obviously be very fearful that they could end up uh, escalating things uh, quite significantly and, and be involved themselves in a firefight with the Russians. Then there's also the problem with mines. Uh, the Ukrainians have laid mines around Odessa because they are obviously frightened of the Russian forces attempting a landing operation on the city. And so in order for a humanitarian convoy to take place, the Ukrainians would also have to demine the area but of course, if they were going to do that, they would want Russian assurances that the Russians wouldn't then use that as an opportunity to try and take the city. Yeah, and Russia's response is crucial. And um, as I understand it, we, we've had this response of, yeah, well, you know, we, we could consider this um, if you lift sanctions, which is not something that uh, any uh, Western country is about to do anytime soon. No, I don't think I don't think they are. And I think the, the sanctions that Russia would want to lift would probably be so extreme that it would never be palatable for, for countries such as Britain and, and, and European nations and, and the US. And so it doesn't seem like there is going to be an agreement anytime soon. We have obviously had the German Chancellor and the French President holding talks with Putin over the weekend. And, and the outcome of that was um, apparently Moscow said it was willing to sort of find ways to unblock those grain exports. Um, but then uh, other nations in Europe hit back and said that there shouldn't be negotiations with Putin. You can't trust him. If he says that he's going to allow a humanitarian uh, corridor, is he really going to allow it? And is he just going to use that as an opportunity to uh, invade Odessa and take further Ukrainian territory? Larissa Brown, um, the Times defence editor. Um, thank you very much for explaining all of that. Um, so let's turn our attention to the grain production in Ukraine and what happens to the grain if it can't get out. Dr John Rich is the chief executive of MHP, who's the biggest grain producer in Ukraine. Um, good morning to you, John. Yes, good morning, Carol. Um, really good to have you with us. Um, we're going to bring in, in a moment, Chris Southworth, who is the General Secretary for the International Chamber of Commerce. Um, but let me ask you, first of all, to explain... I mean, how much grain is there? And, and, and I mean, is it literally st stuck in warehouses at the moment? Well, actually, at present, we have around about 20 to 25 million tonnes in storage, uh, which is still waiting to, to be shipped. Uh, I think it might be at the end of May closer towards 20 million tonnes, uh, but uh, around that figure. Now, at present, our estimations for the wheat harvest, which we commence in approximately four to five weeks' time, is around about 20 million tonnes. Now, that's probably on the lower end because I'm being quite conservative, but uh, let's say 20, 25 million tonnes of wheat. And then for the summer harvest, we're expecting about 35 million tonnes approximately. So in other words, around about 50% less than we compared to last year, which is a very exceptional year. But at present, total stock on hand plus what we can produce this year sits at around about 75 to 80 million tonnes. Now of that, normally, we would use 20, 25 million tonnes of grain internally and the balance is exported. So therein lies the problem. The problem is that we're going to have 40 to 50 million tonnes of grain in storage and the ability to export at present across rail is around about a million tonnes a month. <clears throat> and albeit that we've seen a lot of efforts by EU to try and improve the situation and increase that to 1.5, maybe 2 million tonnes a month, the numbers just don't stack, as you can see, because the big ports 
were responsible for shipping up to 80 million tonnes in, in a matter of months, and now we're in a situation of having the same amount, and, and we can only export maybe at max 15 million tonnes per year across the borders. So, so, we so have, this would normally be put onto ships <coughs> and taken, what, out of Odessa or other ports as it, well? Exactly. And and at present, you know, there's 89 ships still tied up in the, around the Odessa region with grain still on them. So let's, let's and a lot of uh, the storage in the Odessa area is already full. So at present, the system's full. There's only one good thing, and that is that normally Ukraine has about, eight, sorry, 75 million tonnes of storage. At present, we have available about 60 million. In other words, 15 million tonnes have been lost in the war. So we can store, store the grain. Technically, at present, we can store our crops at present, but we just can't export them. And therein lies the big problem. And I, I was just in Morocco last week, and they've got the worst drought for many, many years. It's a very, very serious situation for the MENA region. Um, let me bring in Chris Southworth, who is General Secretary for the International Chamber of Commerce. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning. Um, we're hearing there about the phenomenal amounts of grain that are stuck in and around Odessa. How is this affecting international exports and international supplies? Well, I think it's affecting the uh, international trade economy in sort of three ways. First of all, it's further risk to the economic recovery, uh, more supply chain disruption, more inflation, uh, more impingement and hampering of the finance system too. Uh, it's also a um, hampering the supply of raw materials. Uh, we've heard about wheat, barley, corn, and rapeseed, uh, but also aluminium, iron, nickel, fertilizers is a really big, big one, and oil and gas. Obviously, we've heard a lot about that. And then thirdly, trade routes. We've heard about the sea seaports, but it's also about the airports and land ports. Uh, the airspace is closed, uh, and then Ukraine uh, provides an important land bridge between Europe and. Asia Central, uh, and then across the sea, seaports is the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov uh, provide important sea routes. All of those are blocked at this current time. And just to put some flavor on that, where this is reaching across the economy, you know, the cost of fertilizer uh, for Thailand rice has gone up 30%. Uh, indigenous uh, Ecuadorian communities have had their exports of shrimp, banana, and flowers stopped because they can't access finance. Uh, John has just flagged up the, uh, the MENA region, but we've also got severe food shortages down the Horn of Africa as well. So Africa is, is uh, likely to be heavily impacted and where there is a, a real need for food. And then closer to home, milk prices are up 25%. And of course, uh, the less fertilizer, fertilizer there is, the less food stock there is for, for animals. All of that puts increased pressure on living costs. So it's really having a global effect. Are there are there particular countries that are being worst affected by this, or is it the the squeeze that it puts on global supplies more widely? Well, if if you look at just uh, foodstuffs alone, you know, Russia and Ukraine are thirty percent of the world wheat supply, twenty percent of the corn supply, and eighty percent of sunflower oil. So it's a, it's a it's often called the breadbasket uh, of Europe, but it's really really important. Uh, uh, source of, you know, um, raw raw materials for both food for people, but also for livestock, which then go on to feed people. So it's a really important region, and it's it's really important that we find a solution to enable those exports to come out of the ports, whether escorted or not, 
so that we don't end up with a, a major food security crisis much further across the world over the coming months. Um, Dr. John Rich, um, listening to that, I mean, it does really spell out how serious this problem is. I mean, how long can you store this grain? Well, look, I think that there's two aspects to this. Firstly, what most people don't understand is that in the summer planting program that we've just completed, a lot of farmers have reduced the amount of corn, which normally would go to the EU and to the feed industry, and increased sunflower and soy oil. Definitely in-house, we've done that as one of the biggest producers. This is because of logistics. In other words, we can't see how we can export a large amount of corn uh, into, into the region. So there's a change in planting, to, which will have a material impact. But second thing uh, to your point is that, as I see it now, unless the crops are exported, we will have to minimise our planting program going into the winter. Mm. And so we we just simply won't be able to plant if we can't store. Therein lies the problem. I'd like to bring in now Dr Alessio Palatano, who is a professor of war and strategy at King's College London and also a senior fellow with the Royal United Services Institute. Good morning to you, Alessio. Good morning. Um, We were hearing a little bit from our defence editor, Larissa Brown, earlier, but... Do you think there is a realistic military way of breaking this blockade? Yes, there always is a military solution to a matter. The question is, is it desirable? And is we already have we already reached the stage where that's the only option? And that's really the two questions that we would need to address first. And in particular, because what we we have, you know, part of this this debate hasn't sufficiently engaged with three preliminary, very important aspects. Number one, if we are talking about resuming trade going outside, uh, so from the Black Sea outwardly, then we need to engage with Turkey, we need to engage with the control of the Bosphorus, we need to make sure that the 1936 uh, 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 Montreux Convention um, is fully addressed, because that is one preliminary point. We can try to think about all the sorts of military solutions we want, but without the possibility to go through the Bosphorus, there is no solution at all. So the first thing to address is to engage with Turkey, and through Turkey, with Russia, Uh, to ensure that this corridor um, can be put in place. Uh, The second element to this is speak to something that the IMO has already been engaged with. Ever since the beginning of this crisis, the International Maritime Organization has been very clear about the fact that there's a number of crews and tankers that are stranded. Um, You know, the, 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 the natural implication, everything kind of stopped in the Sea of Azov and in the Black Sea. Um, And and the International Maritime Organization, ever since the beginning of March, has been calling about establishing a sort of uh, uh, um, uh, something of a blue safe maritime corridor for humanitarian reasons. So the second point to address is, could this food shortage, because of the consequences that have been so well described moments ago, be put under that broader framework of a humanitarian corridor, which in a way would reduce the pressure on the military solution? Number three, and this is of no less sort of significance, uh, Larissa talked very eloquently about the fact that you've got mines going on. In fact, IMO just a couple of days ago distributed a letter advising the fact that there's floating mines that have been sighted in the Black Sea. Frankly, you know, if you go back in time, whether it is the Korean War, whether it is the Second World War and sort of ending party in Japan, mining happens 
when either the weaker side sees a fear of being sort of uh, the coastline used for landing or post landing uh, opportunities, or indeed, if in the case of the Russians, they see themselves in the weaker spot, they don't want anybody else to use it. So mines is a problem already, and it's likely to become an even more, a sort of more, more significant problem. Okay. So the, the military solution for it to be found is not just about the convoys, but it's also about the safety. You can get the convoys in place, but you need to have the mining that allows those convoys uh, to take the safety through the Straits of Bosphorus. So if you did have some form of international agreement, perhaps an agreement at the UN, that this was need, that we have to get this stuff out for humanitarian reasons because of the effects it's having, not least on some of the poorest nations of the world. Um, I mean, assuming that the Russians aren't going to agree to it because, you know, they've said they'll only allow it if, if, if we lift sanctions, which is not going to happen. I mean, is the international community really going to take the sort of risks involved in trying to break this blockade? I think given the situation where we are today, and I think both uh, 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 Nick and John, Chris and John have pointed out quite eloquently, there is a clear awareness, whether you're a business community, whether you are the political community, um, at the international level, this is a major crisis. So I think pursuing the widest possible agreement um, in terms of the framework, here we have to disentangle the question from having a framework in place for allowing this to happen and who's going to implement it. Um, and I think the, the, the perhaps one way to engage this is to try to find within that UN context a wider mandate um, in terms of humanitarian support that this would provide, and then sort of um, addressing the question of the implementation closer to home. And in this respect, you've got the UK, you've got the US, you've got France, and some of the major European and NATO partners, they've got both the mining capabilities, as well as the experience. Let's not forget that Ernest Will, which is the last time that we had convoys in place in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war. And this was a very much a successful operation. We have that kind of expertise, we have that kind of willpower to do so. And so I think in terms of the implementation, once the framework is in place, it would be perhaps easier to find people willing to take that kind of risk, given the wider agreement we have over the nature of this crisis. Um, Chris Southworth, just listening to that, um, do you think that this crisis is now of sufficient scale, that there should be that kind of international agreement, um, perhaps under the auspices of the United Nations, to say, look, this is having a huge global humanitarian effect? Yeah, I think that's right. I think Alyssa is uh, completely right on that. I think the there is sufficient international interest in, in making this happen uh, and completely right on equipment uh, and experience to also make it happen, particularly in NATO. Uh, uh, mention of the Gulf uh, is a good example where there were escorted oil car, um, convoys going through the Gulf during those that period of tension with, with Iran. So it is perfectly possible if the Russians agree, and I think we will see increasing international pressure, not just from the EU uh, and US, but also from the developing countries who need the food. Uh, we should also point out here that the, you know, in a food production economy, this isn't just about 2023 and going into the winter of 2022. Uh, sorry, this is, uh, it's about 2023 too, right? Uh, 2023 and getting the right production lines so that we don't end up with a, a problem this winter and then a further problem or worsened problem in 2023. So it's really important that we tackle the issue now 
uh, and, and work with our international partners, whether that's through the UN would probably be the most ideal solution uh, to try and open up that corridor to get the ships out. And, and Dr. John Rich um, from the, gra- the biggest grain producer in Ukraine, I mean, do you get any sense that there is any movement on this? I mean, presumably you are saying to governments not just in Ukraine, um, who, who of course are pretty hamstrung by the Russian blockade, but to saying to them that, that, that this is now getting urgent because presumably the time window for getting this stuff out is now narrowing. Yeah, I think the, the critical thing is that it will start impacting the 2023 program within eight weeks. Okay, so the, the, it, this is a serious issue uh, because we start preparing for that winter program um, and start sowing in October. So I, I think that this small phrase is eloquent enough to, to summarise the situation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therein lies the problem. And I just don't see the, the flesh getting stronger without direct confrontation as it stands today. Dr John Rich, um, Chief Executive of MHB, the MHP, the biggest grain producer in Ukraine, Chris Southworth of the International Chambers of Commerce and Dr Alessio Palatano, um, Professor of War and Strategy at King's College London. And that's all we've got time for on the Red Box podcast. I'll be back tomorrow where we'll be speaking about what we can learn from former chancellors. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts.